the same presence of God that surrounds Jesus, the Holy Spirit is in you. I don't know how else to say it. Death is not your Savior. Jesus is. The Bible literally says you are seated with Him in heavenly places. That's why the album we'll be recording Tuesday by God's grace is called In Him. It was birthed, a lot of the songs out of our Ephesians series. You are in Him right now. Put up Ephesians 2, please. Ephesians 2 out of the Bible so they could see it in context. Then we're going to sing it again. Believe it for our friends and family that they'll join us on Tuesday to worship God with us. Come to church with us. But right now, you got to get it. Look at where it is in the context. It's in the context of the gospel, okay? The gospel is being preached. And he says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you've been saved. See, he's preaching. He's preaching. See, at the cross, this is what happened. But keep going, verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Somebody say right now. That's where you are right now if you're saved. If you are truly saved, that is a now reality. So how can you be in a body and in heaven at the same time? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what makes heaven heaven. The atmosphere of heaven is the Holy Spirit. So wherever the Holy Spirit is, heaven. Heaven is coming to us. Heaven is there at the temple. Like when you see the cloud by day, the fire by night. That's a, that, I don't like to say a part or a piece because there's no part or piece of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at it as it's a manifestation. It is a manifestation of the, of the presence of God of heaven. So it's showing you heaven. It's showing you what heaven is like. Well, the Holy Spirit now is inside of you, not a piece of of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who cannot be subdivided and taken into different parts and pieces. All of Christ by the Holy Spirit is in you, and all of you is in him, seated in heavenly places, in order that in the coming ages, this is what we're looking forward to, in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So in the future... We're going to talk about what he did here, which was save sinners and put his presence inside of us. That's how important we're learning today about the cross is. Paul is now looking back at it and teaching us, for it is by grace you've been saved, going back to the gospel through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork or masterpiece created in Christ Jesus. Somebody say, in Christ Jesus. That's where we get the idea, in him. It also says it in other places in Ephesians, in him, to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So let me ask you this. Can you get closer to God than being in Christ Jesus? No. Can you get closer to heaven than being seated in heavenly places? No. So you can't get closer to God and you cannot get closer to heavenly places other than what you are right now. Now, can you get closer to the physical body of Jesus that is in heaven? Yes, we will see Jesus in his physical body in heaven. That is true. You will be closer to Jesus as he is on a physical throne. He is there right now. But God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not the only person of the Godhead. And so the Holy Spirit is as much God as the Father and Son are. 
So when the Holy Spirit comes, God comes. Do you, all, do you all get that? That's good theology. When the Holy Spirit comes, God comes. When you are in the Holy Spirit, you are in God, your creator. In him you live and move and have your being, the Bible says. So go back to the words of that song, please. Let's sing it for ourselves. Heaven is coming through me. You know, let's sing that for ourselves. But then, as we sing that next part, touching the world around me, changing the world around me, would you think about the people that are important in your life and pray for them and lift them up to God so that we can see them come into the heavenly places with us, amen? Because there's a seat for them. There's a seat for all our friends and family. Let's sing it out. Heaven is coming. Come on. It's coming through me, the Holy Spirit. Here he is. I welcome you, Holy Spirit. You're touching the world around me. You're touching hearts. You're changing lives. Heaven, the Holy Spirit is coming through me. I believe that. And he's changing the world around me. Just a few more times. Let's sing it out and think of our friends and family. Heaven is coming to Steve and Michelle. It's going to touch them. It's going to touch my sister. It's going to touch this neighborhood. The Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. Yes, Lord, come through me and change the world, Jesus. Change, change by the power of the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Touch and change the world. Touch and change us. sing it one last time because I feel God in this place. I feel his presence. I hope you do too. Even if you don't, he's still real. Sometimes I don't feel I'm in love with my wife, but I know that I am because love is not just a feeling. Can I hear an amen to that? Okay, so listen to me. Sometimes people think they've got to pray to saints or angels because they're closer to God than we are, and they miss the whole point, don't they, of Jesus going on the cross, splitting the veil. We know that's not true, and I wrote a book about it by God's grace, going to be released soon. Uh, real saints don't pray to saints or angels. Give that to all your Catholic friends for Christmas, okay? See how soon I can get it out. But, but here's the deal. The reason is, is because when Jesus gave dominion, somebody say dominion. Thank you. When Jesus gave dominion, he gave it to men and women on earth. When he reasserts the dominion while he's preaching to them, he says, if any two of you or three get together and touch and agree, on earth it shall be done for you. Don't you remember that? It's a very important part. You have to be on earth to have the dominion. If you're a disembodied spirit and you're in heaven, you don't have the authority. Now you might say, well, how do the angels come with authority? They come as a result of God sending them behalf of our prayers. The Bible says angels are our servants ministering unto us. So we are to not speak directly to them, but on earth speak to God and believe that what we're binding on earth first, starting on earth, 
is then bound in heaven by the angels and the power that God gives them to bring their authority. And then whatever we loose on earth, starting from earth, starting from the place of authority, being made in the image of God, with the voice of God and the power of God, whatever we loose on earth is loosed in heaven. So my friends, not only, everybody get this, not only are you as close to God as you will ever be, not only are you as close to heaven and what makes heaven as you will ever be, but you are given the authority to have dominion over the world in this age more than you will ever have it. This is it. This is all the authority that you ever get in this age. The next stage after judgment, millennial reign, we are no longer functioning in the age that we're in now. That age is the age of the sons and daughters of God ruling and reigning. This is the age of the gospel being preached. This is the age of the gospel being preached. Do you understand that? We're going to read about it at the you know next week at Matthew 28. And, there, and surely I'm with you unto the end of the age. Unto the end of the age. This is the only time. This is the only time you get to whoop on the devil. This is it and to build Christ's church. In the millennial age, in the age to come, he is tied up and bound, the Bible says, and the gospel is known. God is sitting on a throne. There's no more faith in that. I mean, you just have to decide whether or not you'll believe it and serve it, uh, or rather not you'll trust God that he has a better plan than what you're seeing on the earth at that time because there'll still be temptation, but you're going to see him face to face. So we're not going to have to preach about it in that sense. We're actually just going to rule over them, serve that God, or you get in trouble. That's what it means. We're going to be judges. Right now is the only time you get to bind and loose. Right now is the only time you get to preach and see help uh, plundered and heaven populated. We had lost one of our best soldiers. He has gone on to be with the Lord. Reinhard Bonnke, how old was he? 79. My, my prayer is God let me see 80. He passed at 79, won millions to the Lord, made many disciples. I hope I get to go that long, if not longer, for God. But who's going to take Reinhard Bonnke's spot? Right now, he can't do it anymore. Reinhard Bonnke is gone. We can't talk to him. We can't ask him for help. He is gone. It is now our job in this age as the church to take our dominion and our authority and get in the fight and to win a battle. And to see your, son, your, your sons and daughters saved, your brothers and your sisters, and all of our neighbors say, this is the time. This is the time. One more time. Put it up on that board. I'm believing for a revival to come to this city. Holy Spirit, come through me. Touch me. Use me. Change the world around me. Hallelujah. Change the politicians. Change the government officials. Change the schools, God. Change our businesses. Come on, sing it out today with your authority, with your dominion. In the name of Jesus, it's time to conquer the land. It's time to conquer the land. This is it. Come on, rise up, mighty warriors. Battle, fight the good fight. Whoa.
is heaven, heaven is coming woo, through me. Touching Chicago around me. Touching Chicago, Chicago around me. me. Get ready, get ready. Chicago revival's coming. Heaven, heaven. is coming. Yes, he's done it once. Me. He's filled up Soldier Stadium. He'll do it again. Changing, Changing Chicago. Chicago Come on, just the ladies, sing it out. Ladies, I want to hear you believe it today. Heaven, heaven is coming. Woo! Me. These are the voice of angels, messengers in the end times. Yes, sisters. Around me. Come on, sisters. Heaven Woo. is coming through me. You are the daughters and the warriors of Zion, women Changing of God. Chicago around Come me. on, fellas. Come on, mighty men of God, just the men. Heaven, Heaven is, is coming, coming through me. Touching Chicago. Touching Chicago around me. Almighty men of God. Heaven is coming through me changing chicago changing chicago lord i believe it today for mighty men and women of god come on praise them today if you believe it we're going to do it we're going to do it you may be seated in the house of god tell your neighbor god's going to use you amen we want to hear that song on k love amen we want to put that on k love I want to sing about changing a nation and changing a city. You see, I didn't come here to be friends with the devil. I came to start a revolution. I didn't come here, listen to me, my friends, to be your motivational speaker. I came here to be your military sergeant in the name of the Lord to bring you into battle and to march right out there with you. That's why I go out and preach the gospel on Belmont and Clark. Chicago and Rush. That's why I go to the west side, the south side. I preach the gospel not only here but on the streets because I know not everybody here can do what I do. Do you have a pulpit in your home? No. Do you have a podium there? Do you have one on your job, a stage, a sound system? Come on, you don't have that, but you got a voice. And if you're taught with boldness and courage to go bring the gospel to them, you can do it. So even though I love coming here on Sunday, that's the big show that it is and all the fun that we have, the greatest example I want to set for you is going out there in the community and preaching the gospel. I'll be out there Monday night on Chicago and State from 8 to 10 o'clock by God's grace. Join us. For Thanksgiving, we were out on the west side preaching the gospel. It's funny how our, our, our methods change from place to place. When we go downtown, we like to do more, you know, like coffee talk. We keep it more chill. When we went on the west side, man, it just got turned up over there. Will started preaching. Uh, TJ rather started preaching, and he let it loose, man. And I said, oh, this ain't coffee talk anymore. I started, come on, man. I started hearing Jose catch on. Then I started catching on, man. We all just started grabbing that mic, preaching like it was our last time. You know, I want to encourage you to win your friends to Christ during this time. Preach the gospel. Jesus is the reason for the season. 
It's all about him. Focus them back on Jesus. Are you ready to meet him? He's not coming as a baby. He's coming back as a conquering king. I like how one meme said the first king-sized bed was a hay, hay little, you know, little hay thing in a stable. That was the first king-sized bed. Our king came, suffered, and died, and he's coming back again. And that's what we've been doing by God's grace all this year, 2019, going verse by verse through the book of Matthew. We're in chapter 27. Today, we're going to read it all. Tomorrow, or next week, rather, we're going to finish 28. Then the week after that, we're going to have a Christmas service. All the the children are going to do their things. It's going to be awesome. And then the last Sunday of the year, make sure you are here because I'm going to preach on 2020 vision. I had to go there. I had to go there. Come on. I had to go there. I looked at it when some preachers were talking about that. I'm like, man, that's cheesy. But then I thought to myself, but I'm cheesy. I I can't say I'm better than this. This is me. 2020 vision. It's going to be awesome going to focus on what God has given us, 2020 vision. So make sure you're here until the end of the year. Bring your friends and your family. And let's get into Matthew 27. If you're ready, somebody say, I'm ready. Amen. Amen. As we switch gears, we're now at the final moments of Jesus's life. If you've been with us from the beginning, you now know why he's here. He has caused problems with both the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews have found their evidence, or at least what they think is evidence, to have him crucified because he calls himself the Son of Man. And the greatest thing that you could uh, get as a crime against you would be blasphemy. So they think that's blasphemy, which he really is not blasphemy because he is the Son of God come in the form of man. That's what the Son of Man is, a God-like figure looking like a man. And now they have sent him to the Romans who stand for the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are any other nation beside the Jewish people. And we know the Gentile government of Rome is going to have him crucified. So what we are supposed to see in the story is that both Jew and Gentile are responsible for Christ. That's the whole world. Okay, so you're either a Jew or a Gentile, you fit in there. And then we are supposed to see that our own personal sins is what brought him to the cross. You have sinned, I have sinned, we are guilty. Let's take, uh, take uh, off from verse 1, and it's going to continue the story from where we had left off in verse, uh, chapter 26, verse 75. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate the governor. Okay, do you see it? The Jews handing over to the Gentiles. Why couldn't they kill Jesus themselves? Because they were an oppressed people and they had to abide by the laws. They could kill people like Stephen, as we'll eventually see as, as the gospel goes forth after the resurrection. They'll kill little nobodies, but they couldn't kill Jesus because he was a popular figure. And so they had to use the Roman government to do it. They brought their charges to the Roman government, and they said, he has blasphemed us, calling himself basically a god, and he thinks he's a king. That now is going to get him killed by the Romans because it was illegal to call yourself a king without their authority, especially as Jesus was considering himself the king of kings and the lord of lords. So they hand him over to Pilate who was the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is this to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. 
This is the best explanation I can get you for why Judas betrays and hangs himself. I didn't come up, up with it's not original for me, but I think it's very helpful. Judas, along with many other disciples, thought that Jesus should be fighting by now. If he truly is the Messiah and he's done all of these miracles as they've seen, why doesn't he take the power of God and be like a David, kill Goliath, you know, destroy the Roman government, take out Caesar and start ruling and reigning? So Judas, out of what would have been considered a good motive, tries to set Jesus up because you could almost imagine them saying to Jesus, Jesus, when are you going to fight? And he's like, I'm not going to do that. And they're like, Jesus, you should because they don't like you. And he's like, I'm not going to do it. So then Judas says, well, let's see if he'll fight once they punch him and arrest him. Can you kind of get an idea to why he does this? And the reason why I believe that was his motive is because now he sees Jesus is arrested. He sees that Jesus is getting punched and he's not fighting back. And then he goes, oh no, I've betrayed an innocent man. I thought this would work for good, but it's not working. Jesus is not doing the plan. I feel so bad I'm going to kill myself and give back the money. Give back the money, then kill himself. And that's exactly what he does. And the Jewish people do not give him any ease of conscience. Other sinners are not going to understand the will of God. They don't want anything to do with him. They just used him. Let me tell you, other sinners will use you to get what they want. You may think betraying Jesus, skipping church, not living by the morals of the Bible makes these people happy. That's only because you're doing what they want. In their world, the moment you don't do what they want, they're not going to love you either, baby. And a lot of times people think, oh, it's the church people, it's the church people. No, the world don't have no love for you. They don't have no love for you. How many times have I had to tell you the Chicago Bears, the Chicago Cubs, the Chicago Blackhawks, they're not your team. If they were your team, you could get in there without paying. You have to pay to go see your team. Isn't that something? Boy, that's a privilege. I pay to go see my team play. Well, they're not really your team, are they? And every place else. And I know that business is good, and I don't want to make that a bad thing. It's a part of how we make money. That's fine. But let's just be honest. Nobody's giving us favors, especially sinners. But let's just think a minute about Judas and how it can apply to our life. Have we ever knew about the plan of God and thought we had a better way? And when God wouldn't do it our way, we tried to force the situation and then when the situation failed, we blamed God and died spiritually or killed the purpose of God or hung our purpose out to dry and said, well, it just must be over. And we called it quits. It's it quiet when I preach like that. Say, maybe God has told you to wait to date. You start dating early, try to force God into the plan. The relationship falls apart, and then you just kill that relationship. You walk with God, and you say, I'm not going to church anymore. That stuff don't work. Well, did you ever follow God's plan? Why were you even in that situation? Maybe you spent money, got things you thought you needed. The bills are getting more than what you can make, and now you're blaming God for all your financial problems. God's not the reason why you failed when you were in math class, friends. 
Jesus is not the, the reason why all your business ideas don't succeed. You are making mistakes. Now, I do admit that good uh, uh, business can happen through our mistakes, and we have to learn. So I'm not trying to make you feel bad if you've gone through hardships. I have too. But this idea that it's always God's fault when things go bad, and then we'll just hang ourselves and say, now feel sorry for me. I'm quitting. I'm not doing this. God doesn't feel sorry for us. And literally, those who hang themselves go to hell. The Bible says that this man went to hell. Now, I don't know where everyone goes who kills themselves, but I know that murder is a sin, and the Bible says murder shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, you might think, well, can they confess or be forgiven of that? Yeah, but it's kind of hard to confess when you got a bullet in your brain. It's kind of hard to talk. You understand when you're choking. So be honest with yourself right now today. Let's speak to the people who may be suicidal. If you are in that place, let us help you as a church. And if it's beyond our pay grade as counselors, we'll send you to professionals. But know this today. Suicide can never be your solution to your temporary problem because it has an eternal consequence. Suicide is never the answer to your temporary problems because it has an eternal consequence. You say, well, what about those who are sick and who are out of their mind? Why is it they're out of their mind, but yet they still get a gun? How come they don't go get a cap gun? I thought they were out of their mind. Haven't you met people out of their mind? They urinate on themselves. They don't know where they're at. How is it they know how to drive to the Golden Gate Bridge? You had enough sense to do that. You're not out of your mind. You may be hurting in your mind, true, but you're making decisions. And I would say before you buy a gun, buy a set of handcuffs. You're having a bad day. Handcuff yourself to the refrigerator. You have enough sense to go put a gun in your mouth to set up the noose. Why didn't you use spaghetti? You're using rope. You have enough sense. Are you listening to me? Most of them, if not a great majority of them, they write suicide notes. You know what you're doing, and you will be responsible. If you want grace, you want mercy, you want the Jesus who weeps and understands your pain. Finish the story with me today. He does that when you humble yourself and admit you're broken. As a matter of fact, coming to Christ is a, is a little bit like suicide in a sense that you deny yourself, take up your death, your death march, and carry the cross. And that's really what you do. You die to yourself, to your ways, and all the ideas that you have. And as I've studied Dr. Meyer's book, Happiness is a Choice, he runs the Meyer Clinics here in the city, a wonderful Christian counselor with all the degrees you would want somebody to have. Happiness is a Choice. He said over 60, 70% of the depressed, suicidal he deals with are dealing with disgruntlement in their own life, bitterness, unforgiveness, anger anger towards the way life has been. That's a Judas for you right there. Now, lest we think we are better than him, remember Peter also betrayed Jesus. What's the difference between Peter and Judas in the way of betrayal? Not much, only other than uh, Judas got paid for it, but Peter denies him three times that he doesn't even know the man. Judas doesn't say he doesn't know him. He's actually trying to provoke him to take over the whole world. Maybe you could say that was better. I don't know if you were going to betray. If we're talking which betrayal is better. But here's the point. Even though Peter betrayed in a worse way more times, what does he do that Judas doesn't do? He doesn't quit. So what does that tell us? 
that God has a plan even for betrayers. Even when we betray Jesus in small ways or big ways or many times or a few times, he'll forgive us as long as we don't quit and we're willing to repent. If you quit, you can't repent. I love the illustration that you see on Facebook. Two guys are digging for gold. One quits about a sliver before he gets there. The other one keeps going. Don't quit. You don't understand how close you are to a miracle. God can change and rearrange your your life. And I can even say that I ripped up a Bible in front of my parents. I betrayed Jesus in so many horrible ways, and yet I am here. And when we read, by God's grace, and when we read about Peter in the book of Acts, he's the first mighty preacher going forward. Purposefully, I believe God to show us that he can take betrayers, scaredy cats, and turn them into mighty men and women of God. So no excuse. Live for God. Amen? Amen. Now, as we continue on with this story, it says Judas throws the money in the temple, and then he goes away and hangs himself. The chief priests pick up the coins and say, it's against the law to put this money into the treasury since it is blood money. Now they want to keep the law. Somebody say, hypocrite much? You just betrayed an innocent man, but now you're worried about what you're going to do with this money. So they decided to use the money that Judas had given back to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it's called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Now, what's amazing about this, as you see the highlight, if you could just move the mouse off that, please. Thank you. Over Jeremiah the prophet, because some people have said that this is the worst prophecy in all the Bible. All the rest of them possibly can work, but this one is wrong in so many different ways. First, the majority of the passage is not from Jeremiah. It's from Zechariah. Ha, ha, Matthew didn't know that. That's what they say. And then they say it turns from it being a good thing to a bad thing. The people actually getting the money in the, in the prophecy is a good person, the shepherd, and he's the one that then throws it back, and they go, ha, ha, in your story, in the gospel, it's the bad guy. But in the actual prophecy, it's the good guy. And Jeremiah, the one that's mentioned, what's he even mentioned for Most of his words are not even in there. That's only from Zechariah. So we have to go and scour the Bible and find Jeremiah 19 and hear him talk about a potter and all of these things and figure out how does this piece together. This can't be a prophecy. I gave you an entire message on this, 30 minutes, by Dr. Michael Brown, a Jewish expert, a Jew who converted to Christianity to explain how this is not only not a bad thing, this is not bad, but this shows you the amazing insight of Matthew. For example, most cults like Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, even like Islam, will try to go into our Bible and find prophecies. But what they can never do is have it speak from the context and have it make sense to what those people would have understood. Our scriptures and our prophecies are totally different. They are experts in the law. They're experts in the prophets. And from the very beginning, when Matthew was naming out all these fulfillments, from his name being Emmanuel to being born in Bethlehem to him being a king whose origins are of old, John the Baptist being a messenger preparing the way of the Lord, he just goes out of his way to show all of these fulfillments. He has not let us down here. 
The long story short is Jeremiah was a prophet that came before Zechariah and used the potter's field as a place of punishment for Israel. And all of those things that they had gone through were like being broken pieces of pottery. But Jeremiah, uh, I mean, but Zechariah talked about it being bought and being betrayed. And he wanted to show that though the betrayer now was going to be in the story Judas and take the place of what he was, it was to show us that Judas was trying to take the place of God. But it didn't work. And though it didn't work, it only led to more punishment, which Jeremiah was always talking about. And that's why Zechariah was bringing it up. So not only does it come together as one big puzzle piece, but there's no way literally to make sense of pieces of silver, the potter's field, and all of those things as prophecy, unless you see it this way. Matthew was a genius when you look at the other cults and the things they do, I wish I could go into times like, like a message called the failed prophecy of the cults out of the Bible. It's just redonkulous. I, I mean, I'm just telling you, it's redonkulous. This shows you that Matthew was a scholar at the highest level. He honored the scriptures. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was combining the themes of these two mighty prophets, and he was showing that what they were talking about was now fulfilled in a unique way of betrayal. Betrayal is the key. And those prophets. So the bottom line is Matthew, he gives us the pieces of silver, he gives us the potter's field, and he says, Guess what? That's exactly what happened here. And then he adds in the betrayal, as I was mentioning. Okay, now let's keep going as Jesus comes before Pilate in verse 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. There you go. Now the Gentiles have a reason to kill Jesus. Can everybody put it together? Why did the Jews have a reason to kill Jesus? He claims to be the son of man. They understand that from Daniel 7. The son of man is a godlike figure. That's worship. That's blasphemy. What does Rome need to kill him? Sedition. That He wants to take over the Roman Empire. Are you a king? Yes, you have said so. Now they've got reason to kill him. Jew and Gentile alike are both guilty for Jesus' death. But is he really our king? Yes. Is he the king over Caesar and everybody else? Yes, they shouldn't have killed him. But, of course, Jesus knew, and this is part of the plan. Verse 12, when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now, if you want to see the three major prophecies that are clearly fulfilled, that doesn't take a theological mind like Matthew to understand, write down these passages. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, and Psalm 61. Literally, if you took these three chapters and read them to anybody, 99% of the time, they're going to think Isaiah 53 Psalm 69 and Psalm 22 are written after Jesus was crucified. And in actuality, they're written hundreds of years beforehand. As a matter of fact, Jesus is going to quote one in just a little bit while he's on the cross. And they'll be gambling for his clothes, literally like it was said. And every time they mock him and offer him the drinks to take away the pain, that was also prophesied in Psalm 69. And him not answering other than what was to be given as evidence against him. He was going to not hide his identity at this point. Other than that, he doesn't defend himself anymore. He allows them to have the charge they need to kill him for, in fact, that's why he's come 
our king is going to die. So he gives them the identity of who he is. Other than that, he remains silent as a sheep before getting slaughtered. That's Isaiah 53, 7. Now let's keep going. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival, this is Passover, to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. Now Jesus was a popular name back then. And Barabbas means bar, means son, and Abbas means son of a man named Abbas. And Abbas can also mean father. So Jesus, son of Abbas, is there as a prisoner. He deserves to be there according to Rome. But now we're going to see what happens when they give them the choice. And you know the story, but let's keep going. So Jesus Barabbas is there. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus, son of Abbas, or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? For he knew he was out of self-interest. They had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his, um, his wife sent a message, don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Now, have you ever asked yourself, how do we know what's going on in private places as the story's being told? You're reading it most of the time, taking that for granted. We know what Pilate's saying behind the scenes, but there's none of our disciples there. They're all running. One's run, uh, run away. One's run away even naked. Uh, Peter's betraying him. There's a, a big distance between them and this palace right now. Well, here's evidence of the New Testament and its validity. Unknown except by the Holy Spirit to Luke, the writer in the book of Acts, the historical account of the church, Luke starts recording that high officials in the government start getting saved. He tells us government officials got saved, centurions, leaders, etc. Why does that matter now? Because those are the very ones who are giving Matthew the testimony. So imagine you were a guard on duty at that time, just sitting back, and all of a sudden you see Pilate's wife come in and go, I've had a dream about him. He's innocent. Don't kill him. And then you just take that as being odd or as a situation you had to observe, and then later on you become a Christian, and then you're there telling your testimony and say, I remember when Pilate's wife said X, Y, and Z. But we never would have known how that information would have gotten to us unless Luke, like I said, only known to the Holy Spirit, fills in that gap. Officials are getting saved, even out of the house of Herod and out of this place. Soldiers are getting saved. Isn't that awesome? The Bible is a historical account. And here we see that the woman is convicted because she now knows this man is innocent. She doesn't see the plan and at this point, the plan is going to go forward because God knows the future. They're not going to listen. And for that very reason, he has come to die as an innocent one. He is going to take our place. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for son of Abbas and to have Jesus, the Messiah, executed. And so Pilate says, which two do you want, or which one of the two do you want me to release? Son of a boss, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took some water, washed his hands in front of the crowd. Now listen to what he says. I am innocent of this man's blood. He said, it is your responsibility. 
All the people answered, His blood is on us and our children. Now, you have just read the number one verse for people to be anti-Semite, to be anti-Jewish. This is the number one verse of the Inquisition and why Catholics tried to convert Jews, and when they didn't convert, they would burn them and torture them. This is the number one verse of why Martin Luther in Germany hated the Jews, called them a synagogue of Satan, and he himself would torture them and people following him. And that's why Germany was the, heart, uh, was the birthplace of Nazism, because they were taught to hate the Jews, even as quote-unquote Christians. So it's stupid, I know, but you have to understand the mindset of an anti-Semite because we would all say, Jesus was a Jew. How do you hate Jews? The entire Bible is full of Jews. Every written word came from a Jew, okay? So how are you going to be upset with Jews? This is the scripture they use. At the point of the crucifixion, the Jewish people and their children became cursed. God hates them. They are guilty of killing God in the flesh, and we ought to hate them and to always despise them. Now, should we do that? Well, number one, to think like that is totally anti the Bible. How did Jesus tell us to treat our enemies? Love your enemies. So even if the Jewish people were our enemies, like Islam is our enemies, there's nothing redemptive in Islam. Islam is a demonic religion started by a demon and powered by demons. We love the common people. We know most of them are lazy Muslims. Thank God for lazy Muslims, not trying to be like Muhammad. Don't be like Muhammad is my prayer for a Muslim. But here's the point. Even though there's nothing about their religion that we should find good in or try to find similarity, it's a demonic religion, how do we treat them? We love them. We care for them. Even in their sin against us, we forgive them. Remember Jesus on the cross? It's going to be in another gospel, not this gospel, but he says, forgive them for they know not what they do. So what we have to, number one, understand is hating a people group, never biblical. Racism, bad, okay? Anti-Semitism, bad. That's number one. Number two, this is fulfilled at the destruction of the temple. How do I know? Jesus had already told us about it in Matthew chapter 24, that that is going to be their punishment, not the Holocaust, not us as Christians burning them alive. That is the punishment. And then Paul himself writing in Romans 10 and 11 says God loves the Jews, has a plan for the Jews. The, the promises still are going to come about. That's why in 1948 they got brought back to their land. The only people group that was away from their land for over a thousand years but maintained their identity and came back to their very land. That's a miracle. That's the fig tree in Matthew 24. That's a sign of the times. So we bless Israel. Now understand this they can't be saved in their covenant because as we see when Christ dies the temple veil is torn in two to show us that no longer do those sacrifices and that way of doing religion bring forgiveness they too have to be saved in other words but God still has a covenant with them so number one 
Even if we do have enemies of other religions, we still love them, we pray for them, we never hate them, we always wish the best for them and try to see them saved. Number two, God has not given up on his people. He will punish them, though, and that has already been fulfilled. And then lastly, all the things the Jewish people have suffered from that time, such as the Holocaust, the Inquisitions, are actually not God's punishment. It is Satan's attack against them it's Satan attacking them using the church to have them become hardened towards the gospel it's Satan that that turned Nazism against them because the Bible prophesies they have to become a nation for Christ to come back and to spare them from that judgment of the Antichrist that is prophecy so the devil's trying to wipe off God's timetable it's like you get mad at your alarm and you try to break it or hit it or turn it off or throw it because you don't want that to wake you up the Israelite people are the wake-up call of God's judgment. And if Satan can rid the earth of them, then maybe we won't think about how close we are to the end times. If you want to learn more about how Christians have wrongly thought about Jews, read Dr. Michael Brown's book, Our Hands Are Stained With Blood. Our hands are stained with blood. He's a converted Jew to Christianity. He will share with you the honest truth of how Christians have misused this to oppress the Jewish people. And any Christian, quote unquote, who has acted that way went to hell unless they repented. It's unbiblical. Everybody say shalom. We pray shalom, peace upon the Jewish people. We want them to receive the gospel, and we want peace in their nation. Even though we may not agree with everything their nation does, because they're not always following God as they should, we pray peace to their nation. Now, verse 26, one of the the greatest parts of the story at this point, it says, Then he released Barabbas, son of Abbas, to them, but had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. You say, how is that one of the best parts? Because Jesus took our spot. We were all like Barabbas. We all deserved the punishment, the wrath, and yet Christ takes our spot. Christ took his spot as he took your spot, my spot. And in that sentence right there, he was flogged and handed over to be crucified. My friends, I know we've seen the movies. I know we've seen the pictures. But let us just think about it afresh and anew. Can we even imagine what that was like? This is the creator being tortured by his creation. This would be like you starting a a cartoon like The Simpsons, giving them free will and then them turning against you. And instead of you just deleting the program and say to hell with them, you go into the cartoon and let these little inklings torture you in the worst possible way. Couldn't have Jesus just hit reset at the Garden of Eden? Couldn't he just destroyed us all like he did in the flood, not left any humans? Maybe then do what the Avatar people do, like the Naboo, start another planet with blue people or something? Why did he allow us to go on even knowing he was going to pay the greatest price? Because God so loved the world. Out of God's love, Jesus comes to redeem us and take what we deserve. The flogging. The Romans were experts at torture. One whip called the cat of nine tails had nine individual pieces of leather coming off of it with broken pieces of pottery and glass and metal balls. Every time they whipped him one time, nine lashes went into him and dug into his skin and then it would pull out and take pieces of flesh and muscle. They did that 39 times. 
until he was a bloody mess. And then they hand him over to be crucified. Let's keep going. As if that would have been enough, there's still more to how they mistreat our precious Jesus. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him, which more than likely is naked. Oftentimes we see him in a loincloth, but there was probably no regard for him at this point. Put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns, pushed it into his head. They put a staff in his right hand and then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They then spit on him, took the staff out of his hand and struck him on the head with it again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him, and then they led him away to be crucified. Just imagine what it feels like, a Band-Aid coming off of an open wound. They put this cloth on him, and his body is just a bloody mess, and then they rip it off of him, mock him, ridicule him, lead him to be crucified. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene, that's northern Africa, named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. More than likely, just the, the horizontal beam weighing over 100 pounds, it's, it's crushing him. He's been up all night. He's been beaten by the Jews. He's been whipped and beaten by the Romans, and so he's falling under the pressure of that, and this man carries the cross, and that's where Jesus told us to carry the cross. We are to carry the cross with Jesus. If they treated him this way, we should be prepared to be treated the same way. Jesus said, they will hate you because they hated me first. This man from northern Africa was not afraid to carry the cross for Jesus. They came to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. They offered Jesus wine to drink, which remember he said he wouldn't do until after the resurrection, mixed with gall, which was poison, which was like to get him to be numb, to have him be high, like a pain medicine. But after tasting it, he refuses to even drink it. That's Psalm 69 being fulfilled. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. They strip him naked again, place the nails in his arms, in his legs, and then they start gambling for his clothes. No respect for our Jesus. Psalm 22 talks about them gambling for his clothes. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. So this is how they mock him with the crown of thorns, all of those things. And then finally, right above him, here's your king. Here's the king. Now, both parties find this to be ridiculous. The Jews are like, if he was our king, Caesar would be dead now. So we know he's not our king, and they're mocking and laughing. And then, of course, the Romans are laughing. If he was a king, there would be legions of his soldiers here. Of course, he's not a king. And what we know about crucifixion, we actually made a word up to describe how painful it is. It's called excruciating. Like a woman having childbirth without pain medication is excruciating, being burned alive, being, being crushed, bones breaking, excruciating. And there you have in that word the cross, crux, because we cannot think of anything more hideous than being crucified. You're there pinned against the, the wooden stake, and every time to breathe, you have to lift up your body upon the very stake that's torturing you. He is eventually going to die either of suffocating because he can't breathe. He might die because of asphyxiation, blood all in his lungs. Or he might simply have a heart attack or an aneurysm or some kind of a stroke because he's literally bleeding out everywhere. This is excruciating pain. 
But two rebels are also crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by also hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and elders mocked him. Do you notice everybody's mocking him? Here's the king, but he can't save himself. He can't save himself. He's supposed to be the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants wants him, for he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Now we know when we get the surround sound of the gospel that one of these men gets saved. But notice this about Matthew. He's not talking about Mary, the mother of Jesus. She doesn't matter in Matthew's story. He's not talking even about another man getting saved. That doesn't matter to Matthew. By the Holy Spirit, this gospel is being written for you and I to catch one main point. Our Jesus is alone. Everyone has forsaken him. Everyone has turned their back on him. And he is in the most amount of pain. But I am thankful for those other gospels. Because while he's on the cross and while he's being mocked and ridiculed, the Bible says one of the prisoners, one of the rebels up there, he realizes he's not responding back. We're mocking him and he's not responding back. And there must have been some type of reputation Jesus had that this man knew about because at this point, as he's in excruciating pain, probably cursing out of his mind, all of these things, he's now realizing that what they said about this man must be true because look at how different he's dying. He's not hating and cursing his enemies. He's there loving them, remaining silent and just forgiving them. And he says to Jesus, Jesus, Will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And then with all that it takes to breathe and to speak, those words come from Jesus at a cost. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus, while dying for humanity, saves an individual soul, proving to us that the shepherd will do whatever it takes to save the one. That's how special we are to Jesus, and I can relate to this man on the cross because literally hours before my salvation, I was cursing out Jesus. These men, one of them, went from cursing to being saved. It is not too late for you to be saved. I don't recommend you waiting for the last moments because you don't know your last moments. But today, I can tell you, no matter what you have done if you can recognize who died on the cross for you, you will be saved. At this point, I get angry at our generation for two main reasons. Because when I read this, I can't help but think of how people take the name of our Lord and Savior in vain and how disrespectful that is. Even among some Christian comedians like Perry, uh, what's Tyler Perry and Mama Medea, listen to me, my friends. If you can't say that joke about Jesus or his name in front of the cross, you have no right to say it now. Jesus is the most precious name given among men that we might be saved. Jesus represents the suffering of what he did for us. And then number two, how dare we take his name in vain? Why is it when we stub our toe, we don't say, oh, Hitler, 
Why don't we stub our toe and say, oh, Stalin, how dare we out of anger say the most blessed, beautiful name, Jesus, the one who suffered for us even under ridicule, under pain, loved us, forgave us. How dare we ridicule him at the foot of the cross? And then lastly, I'm bothered by the people today in this generation that say, well, if God would do this and this and give me a dream or write my names in the star, the stars, then I'll believe. If he'll heal my sick mother or if he'll do this one miracle, I'll believe. Listen to me, my friends. If looking at the cross of a man dying for you, the son of God, in all the glory and all the pain he went through, if that doesn't show you God's love for you, you deserve hell, you wicked vile sinner. The greatest proof we will ever get of God's love is the cross. They said, come down and we'll believe. I believe because he stayed up there for me. Any pagan God could have came down, shot fire out of his eyes. I believe not because he came down to rescue himself. I believe but because he stayed to die for me. How dare you now demand another thing? I want another sign. I want another sign. I'm going through so many problems. I deserve a sign. You don't deserve nothing but hellfire, my friends. Look to the cross and you'll see all the evidence of God and his love you will ever find on this planet that is the greatest sign of love and of God's presence for us the one who came born of a virgin the one who lived sinlessly the one who performed miracles the one who taught us the things of God that very one is there that's all you get if that's not good enough for you you deserve the hell you go to That's it. And that's really all we've ever needed was to know our sins would be atoned for. And there he is suffering for us. But we've all been there where we feel the doubts. We feel we need more. And at times, is he gracious to us to do these things on our behalf, to send us that person, to call us at the right time, to remind us to give us that word on the Facebook when you were depressed. Yeah, that was put there for you. What a sign. And yes, God will speak to you through me today. I'm a six-foot-one Italian sign, amen, of God's grace. If he saved me, he'll save you. But the greatest sign of his love and his presence you and I will ever see is the cross. And we ought to go through our lives cross-eyed, seeing the cross My Savior died for me. That settles it. There's no one in history that's done that. And then to prove he was who he said he was, he rised from the dead. As you notice, none of this sounds like myth. This is all based in history to the very place he's buried. It doesn't say, they just took his body and buried it somewhere, and ta-da, he came out alive. No, it's Joseph of Arimathea, that guy. Not just any Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. And it's just not any place in his tomb that he had hewn out. Because remember, this is only written 30, you know, 20 or 30 years later. You could go to Arimathea, ask for a Joseph, and see if that was make-believe. And yet... It's not. We know Joseph. Oh, yeah, it's right there, and there's the tomb. For generation after generation, they knew where that tomb was. Now they charge you, you know, some money there on those tours of Israel to show you three different ones, you know. Everyone charging the greater amount. This is the one. This is the one. We don't know, but it's somewhere there. 
But they knew for generations and generations, oh, that was the tomb. And we knew Joseph of Arimathea. Let God rescue him. They're mocking him, and now he's going to pass. The death of Jesus. Let's keep going. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness covered the whole land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. He now speaks Psalm 22, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, at this point, many of us think that Jesus is depressed and sad to the point where he doesn't think it's turning to good, but that's not true. He's obviously dying. He can't quote the whole psalm. Psalm 22 starts off feeling forsaken. It starts off bad, but it ends with praise and rejoicing. It would be as if Jesus had said a part of the Amazing Grace song. You know, he said, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We would be able to finish the rest of the song. This was a popular psalm of the people. It was a psalm of suffering, yes, but it was one where God is with me even though I'm suffering. So what is he saying? I am forsaken so that you can be accepted. He is feeling rejection because of sin. He doesn't personally sin, but the Bible says in Romans, he became sin for us. And so he felt what it felt like to be separated from God like Adam and Eve that day. But remember, we can never go away from God's presence. God still knew where Adam and Eve were, even though they were now separated in relational sense. The father feels the pain of his son, and the son feels the pain of his sin. And there is a forsaking of the peace and all the joy he used to share in that fellowship because now he's suffering the wrath. But is he giving up? Does he think it's all over? No, because as the psalm goes on, he knows it's going to turn for good. But now watch what the Jews think, what's going on. When some of those standing heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Uh, wrong, wrong answer. He's not praying to the saints, in other words. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered to Jesus. Once again, Psalm 69, but he doesn't take it. The rest said, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. We can go through the rest of the Gospels and see the last sayings of Jesus, but notice that term there, he gave up. God in the flesh determined when he would die. He did not have his life taken, he gave his life. He could have been a superhuman and not experienced any of it, and he never would have left his body, but he allowed his body to have the same amount of pain a human would, and at the point of death, he allowed his body to die. He gave up his spirit. Now, some people say, what happened when God died? Who was in heaven? A lot of foolishness in one statement there, but I hear it all the time. Number one, the Father and the Son are not the same person. The Father's been in heaven watching this the whole time. Don't you remember the baptism? Father speaks, Son being baptized, Holy Spirit comes down, three separate persons. Don't you remember the mountain of transfiguration? Father speaks, cloud of glory, Holy Spirit, there's the Son. So number one, there's always been somebody running things, as people like to ask. Number two, when your spirit leaves your body, do you stop existing? No, your spirit just exists in another place now. So spirits never die in that sense. Bodies die. So what happened when his 
body died, his spirit departed, and he goes to the underworld, Sheol, the place of the grave. He preaches to those who had rejected the prophets, who had rejected the shadow. Because remember, he's the real deal from heaven, giving the commands, and all they have is the shadow, the sacrifices, the preaching, and the teaching. But now he goes to them personally, and he says, what you rejected in shadow is now here, baby. They were speaking for me. You're going to stay here for a long time. And then he goes to Moses and all of them, and he goes, what you were following by shadow, what you were only seeing in dreams and visions, here I am, boys. Let's go into the presence of my father. So he gives them new spiritual birth because up until that time, they had not been born again. Born again could not happen until the Son of God died, but they were in a place known as paradise, a place of blessing as opposed to hell, a place of torture. But now they could be ushered into the presence of God, and they've been there for the last 2,000 years waiting to come back in new bodies at the end of time. So we go there when we lose our body until Christ comes back. So he gives up his spirit. Now watch what happens. At that moment, the temple, uh, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went to the holy city and appeared to many people. Stay on that passage, please. A few things here. What is the significance of what's going on? The whole passage, please. Can you scroll down there for me, sir? There's a passage, and it starts with a paragraph. Nope, you're going wrong direction. There you go. Just scroll up there. Thank you, sir. When we look at this passage, we see the curtain temple is torn. What does that mean? As I was sharing before in our time of prayer, that was the separation between a place called the holy place to the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the fire by night was at for the people of Israel and the cloud by day. That was the manifest presence of God. Why does it split now? Because the Jewish religion, the Jewish covenant is now fulfilled and it's no longer there. The temple is in here by the Holy Spirit. He says, open up. I'm coming into everybody's heart now. It's not just for priests to kind of meet with me and to see me every now and then to be around me. It's time for me to come to the inside. So that which was outside now comes the inside. I got the cloud by day and the fire by night in here. Come on, somebody. That's why the Holy Spirit's poured out on the day of Pentecost. Sacrifice at Passover, pouring out of the Spirit for harvest at Pentecost. And so that beautiful thing happens. And then this next thing happens that people call the zombie apocalypse. Here they come out of the graves. It looks like, you know, the walking dead. People mock us this way and say, oh, you really believe that? Here they come the zombies. Well, the first thing is they're not zombies. Zombies are not partially, uh, zombies are not alive. They're partially alive and they're sick or they're having some kind of demonic power. These people raised to perfect like life like Lazarus. They're not zombies. Does everybody get the difference? A zombie by definition is something either demonically possessed, sick, or partial alive. This is not a decrepit person walking around. These are fully resurrected people. The second thing is, is why did they come out? People go, why did this happen? It's so random. And why didn't other historians talk about it? Like, hey, one day this guy died and a bunch of people came out of graves. There must have been a miracle that day. The reason why they didn't talk about it is because none of this, including Jesus' resurrection, was to prove anything to anybody. It was simply to fulfill God's promises. For example, when Jesus rose from the dead, why didn't he go to Pilate? And he goes, write this down, Pilate, I'm back. 
Why didn't he go around to Caesar and go, you can't kill me now. Can't keep a good man down. Why does he in secret meet with his disciples and then ascend to heaven? It was never based on him putting on a magic show. Our stories are not written like myth, in other words. Myth, it's always trying to prove this God's power, this, you know, this teaching out of this example, etc. The entire gospel is not written for that. Though there are signs and it's to help you believe in who he is as the son of God, it's not to have you worship him for those things. What it's to do is to show you that he came to die for you so that you might live. So what's the raising of the dead mean? Is that people are going to raise again because of Christ's life. And my guess is, as most theologians think, they weren't dead for hundreds of years or, you know, months. They were probably only dead for a few weeks. You know, a city of Jerusalem, a couple hundred thousand people, maybe a few people had died that week. And so those many who had died, the many who had died, not many like hundreds and thousands, but like, you know, if you have 10 people dead in the gravesite or in the burial of that city, many of those got up and that was a sign to us that when Jesus hit the grave, people came out. When the life of God came there, they came out. And that's what is a sign for us. We're coming out of the graves when our spirits come back and getting our bodies back. Even if they've been cremated, when we're coming back, it's literally considered a resurrection. And so at this point, you may say, oh, it's a little spooky. I don't know if I can believe this. Well, you started the book with Matthew believing in a virgin birth. Okay, you believed the book of Matthew when he was walking on water, calming the storms. You were believing it when he was feeding the 5,000. Why would we change believing the apostles' testimonies now? It's once again not written as any kind of myth. It sounds reliable, and they've been reliable thus far. I trust them. Verse 54, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. So now we know Roman soldiers are getting saved. So they're going to know stories about what goes on in governmental places too, right? That's a great way to look at that. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to take care of his needs. Among them was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of G, uh, James and Joseph, and mother of uh, the Zebedee's sons, James and John. Where's Mary, the mother of Jesus? You see, Matthew's not concerned with that, but there's a lot of Marys there. So just like in our times, there's a lot of Marias and Jesuses. In that time, there was a lot of Marias and Jesuses. Do you notice that there? There's like some Marys there, and there were some Jesuses before. What's Jesus? You're talking about Jesus, the Elote man, or Jesus over there on uh, Fullerton? What's Jesus? I want Maria, Maria, the big Maria. No, skinny Maria, this Maria. So they liked the name Maria. And they like the name Jesus. Let's keep going the burial of Jesus. As evening approached, there came just a random guy. No, a rich man from Arimathea. Somebody you could easily go find. If he's a rich man, you're going to know him in Arimathea. Do you guys know this one named Joseph who had himself become a disciple? Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. Rocks don't move, don't they? I mean, do they? Not when you cut something out of a rock. I mean, you can have a little rock, but when you cut something out of a rock, that doesn't move. Joseph of Arimathea, we know who he is. We know the tomb. He takes the body, wraps it in linen, places it in his new tomb, come up, cut out of the rock. Then he rolls a big stone. So that was, a, that was actually his idea in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there opposite the tomb. Now notice this quickly. 
is that women are actually the most loyal to Jesus, and women are the first ones to recognize he raised from the dead. If you were telling a myth, why would you pick women? Women in that culture were most the, uh, the most uh, looked down upon out of men or women, and their testimonies were not considered reliable even in court. Why don't you have Peter, the star of the show, be the one who believes? As a matter of fact, if you were making up the myth, you wouldn't have probably made Peter look bad in all of the stories he's being made look bad. But yet the women always look good. They know what's going on. They're preparing him for battle, uh, for burial rather. They're following him. They don't leave him. They come to the tomb. They believe the resurrection. Why would you do that? See, it's not because they're telling myth. They're actually telling stories. The boys are scared. And it's the women who are being faithful. And that's supposed to make us think this is more real history. It's called a record of embarrassment. Because remember now, Peter has to tell this story everywhere he went. And Jesus raised from the dead. Oh, Peter, were you the first one there? No, it was the women. Uh, Peter, did you believe after the women came back? Uh, no, I actually argued with them and said I wouldn't believe unless I came and saw. Peter, then did you finally believe? No, then I went back fishing and said, well, I guess I'll have to meet them face to face. And then you believe? Yeah, but then I argued them for a little bit. You mean after the women told you, after you went to the empty tomb, after you met, you still didn't believe? Uh, it took a while. How many know it takes a while for some men? Can I hear an amen to that? But God's patient with us, ladies. Thank you. And so we see, once again, historical embarrassment is not a myth. If I'm telling a myth, I'm making Peter look awesome. If I'm a man writing the story, I'm making the men look awesome. But it's really telling us it's faith that's awesome. And it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile or a male or female. If you have faith, you're awesome in the gospel stories. Because remember, the centurion, he's a Gentile, and he's got faith, and he's already been looking awesome, right? And then here we go to the guard at the tomb. In closing, Van, would you come, please? The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and Pharisees went to Pilate. And the reason why I have preparation day highlighted is because some people will try to say, how does Friday and Sunday add up to three days and three nights? And you remember we talked about that? Friday night, Saturday night, where's the third night, right? He's not there Sunday night, you get it? So they'll try to like say, he, if he was there three days and three nights, count it down, Friday, Saturday, Oh, he wasn't there Sunday night, you know. And then they'll say, what, what about whole days? Three days and three nights. Okay, so he was there all day Friday and all day Saturday, but what happened Sunday? He rose. He wasn't there the whole day. So I show you once again, that was hyperbole. It was already used in the Old Testament. And even if you want to take it more literal, he could have been crucified on a Thursday. There are some historians that believe that because of how the Jewish calendar worked. But I like to stay with the three days and three nights, meaning hyperbole. Any part of the day would have counted as a day and a night. And you can look at that more. So they come to, the, they come to Pilate because they think there's going to be some deception here. So they go to Pilate, sir... We remember that while he was still alive, the deceiver said, after three days, I'm going to rise again. So they knew that, and they knew three days meant what we meant. So they were there on Sunday when it was a Friday. So that kind of helps you in the story. So they go, we know this is happening. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. See, they were pretty smart, weren't they? They were being deceived by their own wicked hearts to put these charges against the man, but they knew enough of his teachings to make this out. He had been telling us he was going to give our, his life for us, so he wasn't really going to destroy the temple. That was symbolic of his life. And he did tell us he was going to rise from the dead because he was going to be innocent, and he was pretty innocent as we were torturing him. 
So uh, this thing from the rise from the dead, it still may happen, but they're going to probably try to steal his body to make it happen. So let's guard the, t- uh, the tomb. Let's seal the tomb. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate said. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went, made the tomb secure, putting a seal on a stone and on the stone and posting the guard. And so at this point, the story is going to end. Everybody go, ah. So we're going to leave it on a cliff note. You got to come back next week, boys and girls, and find out what happened. Same bat channel, same bat place. How many know he raises from the dead? How many know the end of the story? Amen. But let's just think about it for a minute. Let's think about it for a minute before we get to the conclusion. Is that how are they thinking this is going to work, the Pharisees, to start a religion? They might steal the body and then say he raised from the dead. Do you remember the movie Weekend at Bernie's? It's basically about a dead guy, and they try to bring him along everywhere and convince people he's alive. It's redonkulous. The guy can't talk. He's always slooping, you know, slouching over, and they're trying to get him to play golf, you know. It's hilarious. It has a little bit of dirty words, but be careful. It's hilarious. But how are you going to bring Weekend at Bernie's Jesus around and convince them he's the Messiah? Even the Jews' idea is not going to work. Why is Peter going to believe that? Peter's scared out of his mind. If you were to break a Roman seal or mess with a Roman soldier, you would be crucified. Peter has already shown how cowardly he is. He won't even watch his friend get crucified, let alone go try to take over a Roman soldier, steal a body, and then walk around with the dead Jesus going, hey, he's really alive. Follow the thinking here. Everybody, including atheists, Muslims, Hindus, has to deal with this. What happened to his body? Every major scholar of any religion who gives their time to this, Jew, Muslim, Christian who doesn't believe conservative values, atheist who studies this, Bart Ehrman, for example, believes in all of the major facts. There was a man named Jesus. He was crucified and he was buried And watch, watch, number four, no one could find his body, but many believe they saw him resurrected. They don't even argue with that. No historical argument from the time of Christ till now has ever been found in any record to disprove this, only to prove it. The only argument that atheists give is that they kept the body And then they began to have hallucinations of him. And to justify their hallucinations, they told a story of resurrection. There's two reasons why that doesn't make sense. Number one, they were Jews. They were not liars. Jewish people were commanded not to lie. They followed the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had zero motivation to take a failed messianic figure and put a story on top of that. They did not even understand resurrection when he was talking about it with them. They would not have lied or contrived that story. And number two, what if they did, what were they going to gain from it? When Muslims believe a lie, that if they die in a martyr's death, they go to paradise, that's what they get from it. But they don't willingly believe a lie about paradise. They actually believe there's a place called paradise, and they're going to get there. Do you get that? They're not lying to themselves. 
What would the Jew get out of knowing it is not true? He's already been disowned by his Jewish people. He has already seen the Roman government turn against him. Why would he lie? For those two reasons, there is an impossibility that they made it up. And then now lastly, what about a hallucination? Maybe the hallucination is true, but they call it a resurrection or something like that. My friends, they had him in groups. They touched him. And even former Jews who persecuted Christians like Paul converted and their stories lined up. Group hallucination does not happen. Maybe hypnotism, but not hallucination. They saw him, touched him various times and places, and others like Paul who were not in the original 12 say he came and visited them. I'm telling you, if you try to disprove this, you will become a Christian more than likely. There is only one sensible, logical, this is not even irrational, I just believe blind faith. No, logical explanation. What these men and women said actually happened. He rose from the dead, he met with them privately, he ascended to heaven. And then he came and talked to a few others, and he established his church. That's what I'm putting my faith in. So the question is now, have you been crucified with Christ? As the altar workers come, would you please uh, go back up there to crucified with Christ? Thank you. As the altar workers come, the story of the cross is a story of salvation for you. And we have to start by acknowledging this happened. How many believe this happened? Do you know that that's how we're saved? Is believing that Jesus Christ died and rose again? And that's as simple as the message is to tell others. A lot of us think about all these commands that come later. That's amazing. But the most simplest message of the gospel, as Paul said it is, is that Christ was crucified, buried, and rose for us. So when we say Jesus is Lord, what do we mean? Jesus conquered death. Jesus took our sins. Jesus took the wrath of God. He brought us salvation. When we say he lives and that he's resurrected, what do we mean by that? We mean that he physically came out of the grave, has a body. He's only kept a few of the scars from where they pierced him, as John says, to make sure that he was dead on his hands and in his feet. Other than that, he doesn't have any of the other scars. But what does the body of Christ represent? That now humanity and God are made one. Because why did he take on the flesh? Because we had messed it up. We had sinned and our flesh deserved to die. So he takes it on to give us new life. That's why heaven isn't our final home. Our final home is a resurrected body on earth. That's why he resurrects. And some people say, well, why didn't he go back to being a spirit? Like the Father's a spirit, like the Holy Spirit's a spirit. He keeps the body because that is what gives us the new body life for eternity. Otherwise, we would never get bodies back. We would have to stay in heaven. For him to give us back a body according to his justice, a body has to be indwelt by the Savior, the resurrected Lord. It has to empower that body for everlasting life. And so as long as Jesus has a body that he's touching, that his spirit is in, we get a new body. 
The resurrection tells me I can live and die for Christ. I'm going to die one day, so are you. But I can live for Christ forever. And so what do I do right now? I let him take my sins, and I call that the crucified life. The crucified life is me dying to myself. I died to myself. That If you want to know two books to read to get the whole story theologically, read Romans and uh, Hebrews. These guys go through it line upon line what was happening on the cross. But in a long story short, he died so my sins would die. He lives so that I can live righteously. Do you want to be crucified with Christ and live a new life? If you do, let's stand up and give it up for Jesus. Amen and amen. Let's pray as we get ready to go. Father, we ask you right now, if there's any here who have not been born again, for them to accept you, to come into their life, that you would change them, rearrange them. If you're here today and you haven't been saved, you can come on up right